All right, Hebrews 1, beginning in verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. We're going to push pause right there. This is all one sentence. It actually goes into verse 4, but we're going to stop right there, and I'm going to get back to the text in just a minute. You know, within our society, I think that innovation and creativity are amongst some of the most amazing qualities in our world today. Innovation and creativity. A man by the name of Elon Musk founded a little company called PayPal a few years ago. He sold that little company for over a billion dollars to Google back in 2002. And he used the money that he made in order to create a new company that was called SpaceX. And SpaceX builds rockets and flies missions for NASA now. But you probably have never heard of SpaceX, but you've probably heard of another little company that he started, um, a company that specializes in making electric cars. Anyone know the name? Tesla. Yeah. And who would have thought that this little company, who would have dreamed that in 2017 that you could make an electric car that goes from 0 to 60 in, in 2.28 seconds? Do I have a picture? Okay, there it is. Look, for crying out loud, it's plugged into the wall. It's faster, zero to 60, than a Ferrari, a Lamborghini, a Bugatti, anything that's street legal. This electric car is faster. Now imagine trying to convince Henry Ford and Thomas Edison that the same electricity that powered street lights in the early 1900s in New York City would be used just a little over 100 years later to create the fastest car, not run on gasoline, but on electricity. Innovation and creativity are fascinating. They're amazing. They're, there's so much innovation all around us. But we have become a society who no longer appreciate innovation. And we no longer appreciate creativity. We've come to expect it, even to demand it. And the demand that we have for innovation and creativity, it, it pulls on us in a way in which it, it drives us. And within our Western culture, it fuels our narcissistic tendencies. That we're always looking for something new. That we live in the moment that patience is no longer a virtue, and humility, well, that's just for the weak, because we want something that's better and faster and newer, and we want it now. That's the way our society is described. But this kind of thinking, 
if we really step back and look, it's even crept into the church, especially in America and our Western society. We see as the church pushes the envelope on entertainment and innovation and creativity with bigger and better programs and facilities of the latest state-of-the-art production. Is there anything wrong with those things? I don't know. Maybe not. But inadvertently, we're seeing a culture within the American church where people are coming to expect something that's better. And if they don't get it at the church that they're attending, there's another one down the street that will cater to their needs. We're always looking for something better. But the fad isn't new. Looking for something better has been around for a long time. Today, we're going to begin to study the book of Hebrews. And in this book, it's largely overlooked. It's usually underemphasized within the study of the New Testament because, well, there's a lot of quotes from the Psalms in it, and there's all these Old Testament references, and we've moved on past the Old Testament with all that blood and law, but we shouldn't. And we're going to see the beauty of God's promise is brought throughout the Old Testament in this book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews was written uh, to a group of followers of Jesus who had left the Jewish religion. However, they were being tempted to turn back to their old ways. They were being tempted to turn back to the sacrificial system, to turn back to the laws and the Jewish holidays, all the things that they could regulate. All the things that they could use objectively to feel as if they had some kind of power and some kind of notoriety. Because within this new system of following Jesus, they were kind of off the radar. They, they didn't really have this huge culture that they were a part of anymore. And so they're tempted to go back and the writer, who is probably not Paul... Uh, I know some of you think it may be Paul. It's probably not. We don't know who it is. It might be Barnabas. There's a whole group of people that it could be. Um, but what's important is not necessarily who wrote it, but what the book is about. And it is a call to persevere faithfully. And that's a call that each of us need to hear. This is a book that's going to be good for us to study. It was probably written before the fall of the temple in AD 70. Uh, are 77, so it's probably written around 70. And the writer, as he writes, he's pointing the people to the fact, and he's calling them not to turn away from belief in Jesus in order to try to find something better. The message of this book that you're going to hear over and over and over again, not over the next few weeks, but the next few months, you're going to hear this message every week. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. And my hope is that as we study through the book of Hebrews, my hope is that we would actually come to believe that. Because we don't. We don't believe it. We're tempted to turn away. We're tempted from without and within on a daily basis to turn away from Jesus and to find our satisfaction, our fulfillment, even our significance in things that are outside of Him. Every sin that we face in our life is ultimately distrust in Jesus. It's unbelief. It's a lack of trust. And the only way that we're going to overcome that distrust in our lives is when we come to know Jesus more. 
when we gain a greater affection for him as he reveals himself, we begin to trust him more. And we do that by getting to know him. That's one of the reasons why we love to study through books of the Bible. Because it's as we study through books of the Bible that we concentrate not on ourselves. There's a temptation as we study to always concentrate on ourselves. The, the Bible has plenty to speak to us, but it's, it's, it's for us, but it's not primarily about us. And that's really important that we remember that because there's this temptation to make it all about us. It's all about Jesus. And so as we come week after week and get into the Word, we're reminded like a little child, oh yeah, life's not all about me. And we mature in the faith. So that's our goal, that we would mature. So let's look in verse 1. We're just looking at, that's a long introduction for uh, three short verses. The writer begins in verse 1. He says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. God spoke. I want to emphasize that. God has spoken. God is real. Uh, he is best described in a way that humans can understand as a person. He is not just an idea. He's not a mystical power. He is not a cosmic mastermind who has wound up uh, the world and he's just kind of watching it tick on by. That's not who God is. The story of the Bible tells us that he is active, that he is attentive that he is intentional in communicating to all of mankind. In fact, the story of the Bible is that we turned away and God intervened. That's the story of the Bible. That's why it's all about him. It's the story that tells us that God has spoken, and he's spoken in a way that's personal. He's spoken in a way in which he is knowledgeable about our lives. If you ever think, I don't know if God really understands me. I don't really know if he understands what I'm going. The Bible says that he knows the numbers of hairs that are on your head, which means for my wife that the hundreds of hairs she left in the floor this morning when she combs her hair because there's like a wig in our bathroom. I don't see how she has any hair, but she has a lot of hair. And uh, it, he knows how many she lost and how many she still has. He knows all about us. He's involved. And that process isn't kind of like he comes and goes. It's been throughout all ages. It began in the Garden of Eden when God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. And it continued through the story of Noah, a beautiful story of Abraham, in which God came to Abraham, this Gentile, this guy who really didn't have anything going for him other than maybe a nice family. You know, Abraham, pretty cool story if you go back and study Abraham. A lot of people think that he came from a rich family in a pretty diverse society. It's even said that they had running water in the city in which he lived. And God said, just let's go. Where? Into the desert. Let's go. Okay, my wife didn't hear that because she's just come in the room. So no one has to share that illustration with her, okay? Um, just making sure y'all are awake. But God has spoken to us. He's spoken through Noah, through Abraham through Jacob and Moses, through the judges, through the kings of Israel. And that was a really rough time in which God just kept trying to speak and trying to speak and people wouldn't hear. He's spoken through the songs of the Old Testament. You know, we call them psalms, but they're songs. They're all songs. He's spoken to us through the poetry, the wisdom literature, through Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon. If you haven't read those books, you need to read them. 
Song of Solomon is PG-13, folks. You should read it. It's a big reminder that sex was God's idea, and it's a really good thing, and it's this whole story. I'm not going to say anymore. Spoiler alert. You should read it. The major and minor prophets, God has spoken. We can see it all throughout the Old Testament. And by the way, the major and minor prophets, just in case you didn't know, that's not like Major League Baseball. It's not, well, he was kind of a minor prophet. He was just figuring, no, it speaks to their focus and to the length of the books. All throughout the Old Testament, we see that God has spoken. But look at verse 2, he says, But in these last days, you can underline last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. The last days, what does He mean by that? In these last days, that term speaks of the progressive revelation of God. Now, what? let me define. Find what I mean by progressive revelation. Not in the sense that we're moving from what is less true to what is more true, or not in the sense that from as we look at the Old Testament and look at the New Testament, that we're moving from what is less mature to what is more mature, but more in the sense of a uh, sense of progression from what was promised to now what is fulfilled. And it's fulfilled in Jesus. His promise that one day we would. He would send a redeemer, a rescuer, one who would save us and set us free. And the progressive revelation of God finds its fulfillment in Jesus. That's what the writer of this book is reminding us, that God revealed himself more and more until in the person of Jesus we find God's final revelation. That there is no revelation of God beyond Jesus. There's no revelation of God that's greater than Jesus. That's really important for us to grasp and to understand as believers. And so we're in the last days. You say, really? We're in the last days? Yes. Jesus came to this earth. And his life and death and resurrection and ascension, it marked time. It's split time in half. And ever since that point in time, we've been living in the last days as we wait on Jesus to come again. As we wait on Jesus to restore all things. You say, I, sometimes I just feel like everything around me is breaking down. Does anyone ever feel that way? You just feel like everything... So, you know, sometimes I go through life and I'm like, man, life's pretty good. I don't see what everybody complains about. And I'm ready to start buying one of those life is good shirts and hats. I don't really like those, but... But sometimes I feel that way. Sorry if you own them. And then, but other times I'm like, oh, the air conditioner is broken. The oil in my car needs to be changed. Uh, I got to do some stuff with my kids. It's, it's just like this never ending to do list of broken stuff. Does anybody ever feel like that? And you're like, if I could just get to the bottom of my list, and then you realize you own a home in Midtown, and that will never happen, right? But Jesus is coming to restore all things. And that's a big deal. Like, you're going to have a home that doesn't have a, a honey list attached to it one day. I'm kind of excited about that. Um, he is coming. He's coming. He's going to restore all, all things. And it says, he has, he has spoken to us by his Son. Underline that. We're in the last days, we're waiting on Jesus to come back, but God has spoken, and He's spoken to us in the most incredible way, in the most life-changing way that He could have spoken. He's spoken to us by His Son. Now, I know you know this, I know, but think about it. 
Let it rest on your heart. Put yourself in God's place. If you're going to try to get someone's attention, if you're going to try to speak to someone, He's spoken to us by His Son. There's no greater statement of love that God can show us than giving us His only Son. I remember having a conversation with a friend who um, didn't have a church home. In fact, it was just a couple of weeks after I'd moved to Memphis. It was really kind of odd. Um, and this, this new acquaintance that I had formed, uh, and he, had, he could count the number of times he had attended church on one hand. But he was genuinely curious. He was a Memphis firefighter and um, similar to my age. And we talked, and I can remember one day at lunch, he, he made this statement. He said, if God is real, and he didn't believe that God was real. He's a really interesting guy. He said, I pray to God every night, but I don't believe he's real. Isn't that interesting? He said, if God is real, why doesn't he come down and make things right and put an end to evil? He asked me that. It was a question mark on the end. Why doesn't he? He's challenged me. God is real. Why does he come down and make things right? This world is so screwed up. He, he rode on the ambulance as well, and he saw stuff that he wished he would have never seen. And this world is so screwed up. I'm so over it. If God is real, what? And I said, I'm not going to say his name. I said, you know what? That's a great question. And you're going to be surprised by my answer because my answer is he has. His name is Jesus. He was the God-man. And he came to restore all things. You can know him now. You can find forgiveness in him. You can be part of his kingdom, which is now and not yet. Like he is coming to restore all things, but it begins now in finding forgiveness in him. I'm still praying for my friend. I'll tell you, his name's Aaron. You can pray for him. Still praying for Aaron. That he come to know Jesus. But Jesus has come in these last days through the person of his son. And God's love is extraordinary. It's been shown to us through Jesus. But the fact that Jesus has come and that God has sent his son, it also speaks to the fact that, I don't know if you realize this or not, but we have an exceptional value. God has chosen to make us exceptional. We have an exceptional value that God would send Jesus. And it's an exceptional value not because of your character, not because of your morality, not because of your charm and good looks. I'm sorry, Michael, as charming and as good-looking as you are, it's because of Jesus that he's given us exceptional value. You know, so many people are looking for further revelation outside of Jesus. But God has given us his last words, and Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise. That's what the writer is trying to remind us of, that God's final words have been brought to us through the person of his son. And he is the heir of all things. We don't have time to go into this. He's the heir of all things. So that means whatever the father has, the son has. And the scripture tells that we're brothers and sisters with, with Jesus. And so whatever Jesus has, we have. So all of a sudden, we've been brought into this wonderful family that we're the heir of all things. You can spend a whole message trying to wrap your whole lifetime trying to wrap your mind around that. We're the heir of all things through whom he created the world, which speaks to Jesus' power and his splendor. If you want a bigger picture of Jesus, 
You're like, well, Jesus didn't show up until the, I know he's always been. He exists outside of time, but he didn't really show up until the New Testament. Not true. Not true. Go back to Genesis 1. The book of John tells all about the way in which Jesus was there at creation and the way in which Jesus worked in creation, which means, and we're going to see this as we wrap up, even in a greater way, but he didn't just start it. He continues it and he'll finish it. But Jesus, he's incredible. His power in creating all of this, his splendor and his creativity. All creativity that we have is creativity that we receive by common grace because of Jesus. It's amazing. This world speaks to his power. It speaks to his splendor. But the writer of Hebrews is speaking that God has spoken in an even greater way than what we see in in common um, revelation through nature. He's spoken to us through Jesus. And now look at who Jesus is in verse 3. We're going to start to wrap up. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. There is so much in this text. We're not going to have time to unpack it all. I was talking with Andrew this week. We were messaging back and forth. He said, what scripture are you teaching on? I told him. He wrote back. He said, that is a fat text. (laughs) And I said, you are right. And verse 3 is a fat verse. But what I want to unpack from this verse is I want us to look at, um, I want to concentrate on the reconciliation that God brings to us through the person of Jesus. The reconciliation he brings to us. And in order to talk about reconciliation, we have to talk about a dirty word. Talk about the S word, the word that society doesn't like to talk about, sin. Sin. We've got to get real in looking at the purification that Jesus brings to us. I know that sin isn't a very popular word in our world today. See, we live in a really individualistic society. You need to be reminded of that. America's not the norm for the world. America's really kind of offbeat We think the world should be like us, um, but the world looks at us and they go, you're really strange. You have no idea what you have. And we live in a very, not very communal, very individualistic society. My rights, uh, my way. You know, you've heard me use it a hundred times, but I just always laugh. Years ago when I was growing up, the army came out with this slogan, and, you know, I don't know if they did some group think or what. And they came up with what sounded like an incredible slogan, an army of one, you know. And, and the whole, and it's kind of like team, I guess, but the whole commercial is about one guy, you know, just like he's, he's the incredible Superman. And I'm like, that's not the army. <laughs> that's not at all the army. No, you get in the army and you're told, you get in line and you shut up and you don't even have a name. You just have a number. You know, and we're very individualistic in the way that we think. But we need, and so that impacts the way in which you think about sin. Um, Some of you passed out postcards this week around the neighborhood, and maybe you had some conversations with someone who asked, what kind of church and what denomination? And what they're really getting to is, what do you believe? What do you believe? Because for most people in our world today, if you want to talk to them about sin, um, they will say, okay, don't you judge me. And I know Jesus said that 
somewhere that you shouldn't judge, which is not at all what Jesus meant if you read that in context. But most people will begin by saying, well, first of all, don't you judge me because most people have the attitude that you can live however you want to live until it begins to affect how I choose to live, which means that there's no real moral absolutes and there's no real objective way to define sin. The way people define sin is it's not sin until it affects me. Or some people still claim, how can you claim that there is some form of sin? There's no sin. I heard someone once say, for someone who believes that there's no such thing as sin, slap them in the face and take whatever they have, and all of a sudden they'll believe in sin. <laughs> they'll say, you just violated me. Oh, was that a sin? Hmm. You don't want me to slap you in the face again? There are moral absolutes, and there is sin. And we find that uh, in this book. And the fact that that person is offended by the fact that they got slapped and their stuff was taken um, speaks to the essence of sin. Sin is offensive. It offends God because He's holy and just and if we're honest, sin, we realize that sin fractures our world. It fractures our relationships. It fractures our families. You, don't, you can't turn the news on. Uh, you can't live life. You can't think very deeply about your own generation and the generations around you without realizing that we are affected greatly by sin. And the writer of this book is pointing to Jesus as the one who has, look at what he says, made purification for our sins, which means, church, that he's made us righteous. He's made us righteous in the eyes of God. The scriptures say uh, that we're righteous because as God looks at us, that he sees Jesus instead of us, that we're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. And that's amazing truth for us. It's crazy. That God sees us just as if we'd never sinned. Realize this. God loves you equally during the successful periods of your life. And he loves you just as equally during the hard periods of your life. If you know him as Savior. If you believe in Jesus. Then the fact that he's made you righteous means that you're just as dearly loved on the biggest day of your failures as you are when you're finding the greatest success. We need to be reminded of that. In fact, God loves you in the midst of your sin. He loves you even though you sin this morning. Amen? Getting the kids here, some of you? I know what Sundays are like. He loves you even though you're going to sin this afternoon. It's crazy. God loves you even in the midst of your sin, and he loves you because of Jesus. Now, I struggle with that truth on a weekly basis. I struggle with that truth on a daily basis, to believe that God is for me. I don't know about you, but I have this regular voice in my head that kind of says things like, oh, you've screwed it up. It's all your fault. God can't work through you. In fact, he's angry at you. He's not for you. 
You're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You're not sharp enough. And the answer to that is, no, I'm not, but Jesus is. And I have Jesus. And so that's all I need. And the writer of Hebrews is trying to remind these people, you have Jesus, and there's nothing better. Because of Jesus, I'm totally accepted. I'm loved. I'm welcomed into the family. There isn't a further work that I need to accomplish because Jesus has finished it all. And then the scriptures say that he has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, which we don't have time to get into that language. It means a whole lot more than what we think it means. In street language, it means that the resurrection was the ultimate mic drop. Defeating death in the grave in Jesus, is, it is fulfilled. Finality in Jesus. Now, as we wrap up today, I want to lead this last idea with you from the book of Hebrews in verse 3. It says, He upholds the universe by the word of His power. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. You know, I, I want to point back to somebody that a lot of people depend on in, in order to show that Jesus is better. Some of you have heard of Eckhart Tolle. In 2003, Watkins Review listed him as the most spiritually influential person in the world. And you'll recognize some of his sayings. They, they appear in social media all the time. Here's one of them. It's through gratitude for the present moment that the spiritual dimension of life opens up. Or here's another one. The power for creating a better future is contained in the present moment. You create a good future by creating a good present. Hebrews tells us that you aren't the creator of anything. Jesus is the creator. And he is the one who holds all things together. And that is good news because I've got, here's the truth. When you are in a hospital room puking your brains out because you're on chemo and you've been told that you're probably going to die from cancer, Eckhart Tolle's The power for creating a better future is contained in the present moment. In the present bedpan you're holding with your vomit in it? I think not. We need something better than what we can bring. And what is better is Jesus. Job 19, verse 25 and 26. Job said it this way. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. That is good news. Jesus is better. And that's the certainty that we have in Jesus. It's the certainty. And it it needs to be preached daily to our hearts. It's more of a message that we hear at a good funeral. But it's a message that we need to hear daily to remind ourselves of that Jesus is better. And it's through Jesus that he holds all things together. And so when you are tempted this week to walk in anxiety and to walk in anger and to walk in depression and to walk in your circumstances of what was or what is in the moment, whether it's a flat tire or a crashed hard drive or what may be in the future, I want you to think about Colossians 1, 16 and 17, and I want you to read it. For by him all things were created, and in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created 
through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus knows it all, and Jesus holds it all. Did you know that Jesus even holds your soul? My prayer as we study the book of Hebrews is that God would do some deep soul work in each of us. That we would come to trust Him more, to know Him more. But listen, the only way that we will allow God to do the deep soul work that He needs to do in us is if we believe that He truly holds our souls. And because He holds them, He can do the deep work that needs to be done within us. See, some of you are here and you're just kind of managing your Christian life. You've kind of taken some risk and you've kind of stepped out in faith and now you're just kind of going through the motions and Jesus wants to challenge you to go deeper, to go further. There are some of you who have just barely stepped into the water and all this is new and you're not certain about it. And I pray that you'll be challenged to go further into the water. I pray that some of you literally would say, you know what? I need to be baptized. I need to physically say that I have died to my life of sin and I've been raised with Jesus and I'm going to live by his power in his presence and be sent out as his missionary. My prayer is for each of us that we would grow in the grace and mercy of God, that he would challenge us. You know, some of us are here on Wednesday mornings. Charlie's been so kind to us. He's, man, we don't use a building on Wednesdays. You can show up there and pray. There's a few of us that we meet right over here. We pray from 6 to 7. You want to know what that prayer group is about? It's about believing that Jesus wants to do more in this city than what we see happening through our physical labor. It's about laboring spiritually that the Spirit of God would come and that He would work first and foremost in our hearts and then that He would begin to transform this neighborhood in Midtown, in Memphis. And I wonder how many of you would step into that journey of trusting God more, of expecting more from God, of allowing Him to grow your faith deeper. You know, God is so gracious to us because the way, if He just showed up in our lives and just dumped everything on us, it, we'd be so overwhelmed. But God is so gracious because He nurtures us into slowly more and more letting go. And as we let go of more and more, you know what we get more of? We get more of Jesus. And as we let go, we learn to trust Him step by step all the way to the last step of our journey on earth in which we get the chance to let go completely and to have all of Jesus. Have you ever thought about that? See, this life shouldn't be lived where it's like, I came to know Jesus, I prayed a prayer, you know, Billy Graham style, went down to the altar, and now I just kind of go through the motions, but there's going to be one day where the curtain's going to be pulled back, and I'm going to have all of Jesus, and I'm going to go from just a little to all of it. No, life should be progressive, in which we are coming to know Jesus more and more and more in that final step 
for the Christian who's maturing, it should be natural in saying, I finally have the opportunity to let go of all things and grab hold of all of Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? When eternity comes. I want to pray for us that God would meet us during this series. I don't know what you need to take away from today. I hope you're taking away that Jesus is better. I hope you'll reflect on some of these passages. I want to read and just finish today by reading Romans 8. I'm going to invite the band to come on up. I want to read from Romans 8, verses 31 through 39. And um, as I read this, we're going to, um, after I read this, we're going to sing together. And uh, we're going to sing a song um, that talks about the deep, deep love of Jesus how vast His love is, how unmeasurable His love is, how boundless His love is. And it's going to be a new song. For So some of you, um, you may catch the tune really quick and want to jump in. It may be a celebratory song. You may be at a place where you're ready to celebrate who Jesus is. For others of you, you may be struggling. It may not be a song that you're picking up on real quick. You may want to just meditate on it. You may want to listen to these words. But for each of us, I want us to be challenged that as we sing this song together and think about who Jesus is, I want us to be challenged to think about what are the areas of my life where I have ceased to trust Jesus? What are the areas of my life where I haven't matured? What are the areas of my life where I don't quite know if I'm ready to go there with Jesus? Because, see, we're relational beings. We're all created. We have to have relationships. But we're also relationally scared. We're relationally scared. You don't like talking in front of people. You don't like going into a new room full of people and meeting. We're relationally scared. And we're also relationally scared in our relationship with God. But God can be trusted. So how do you know God can be trusted? One word. Jesus. God can be trusted because of Jesus. And so I want to challenge you. As you hear these verses read, as we sing this song, what's the area of your life where you need to say, Jesus, I'm willing to, I'm willing to step a little further into the water and see what he does. Romans 8, verses 31 through 39. I want you to hear these words and be encouraged. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Stand with us and sing together.